We know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Grass withers, the flower fades, word of our God stands forever. We pray with me. Father, this morning as we dig in to the Ten Commandments, God, I desire that you would be honored. The name of Jesus Christ would be lifted up. That, Father, we would see you clearly and see ourselves clearly. So, God, even as we head into these, God, by your Holy Spirit, help us to see. Help us to see ourselves rightly, that we would humble ourselves before you. Help us to see you clearly, that we would fear and worship and magnify you as the one true holy God that you are. And God, inside of ourselves, in, in, in seeing ourselves and in seeing you clearly, may we rejoice fully in the good news of the gospel that takes sinners like us and a holy God like you and reconciles us together. Have your work in our hearts, we pray, in this place this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we uh, now in week three of our series in the Ten Commandments, and uh, we, we've done a couple of introductory sermons, but today we're just going to go ahead and launch into it. If I don't, I could do introductions to the Ten Commandments for, for months, and I don't want to do that, so I'm just, we're going to get into it. We're going to get into the first commandment coming out of Exodus 20, verses 1, 2, and 3, that you shall have no other gods besides or before me. We've, we've spent a couple of weeks focusing on big picture ideas, such as the idea that God really is and that God has spoken, and therefore we should listen, and we should obey. Uh, that just this big, broad idea, the Christian worldview, is that yes, God is, and yes, God has spoken to us. He has written the law upon the heart of every human being, Romans 1 tells us, but that, that knowledge became broken after the fall, and so God took that moral law and made it explicitly clear in the giving of the Ten Commandments that we have a moral law that continues from the beginning of time and will continue on throughout eternity. When we get to heaven, guess what? We will be gladly keeping all Ten Commandments. And then last week we talked about the different types and uses of the law where we discussed the ceremonial and the civil laws in contrast to the moral law of God, two of those kinds being abrogated or done away with through the work of Christ, and the moral law, though, continuing on, and then the uses of the law, right, as a muzzle and as a mirror to show us ourselves and as a map to show what the Christian life should look like. And so with those, I I don't know why, go back and listen to them. They're online. If you want to hear them, go back and listen to them again. But we're going on with this first commandment, and, and honestly, from those two big picture sermons, we're not changing a lot. This is still big picture. Have no other gods before me. All the other commandments are going to flow from this one great reality. And in breaking of any of the commandments, we, we always say that you never break one commandment. There's always others involved with it. But in breaking any of the commandments, this one is always involved. 
This one's always involved. Rather, it is on down to not honoring your father and mother, the Sabbath keeping, if it's not down to uh, theft, murder, adultery, all of those things, the breaking of those, all have a part of them, the breaking of this first commandment, that you would have no other gods than God. You don't get any bigger picture than this. So we're going to just start with just a simple question for all of us sitting here. Do you believe in God? Don't raise your hands, but I assume that, because uh, I don't want to make anybody uncomfortable if you're an atheist sitting here, but uh, most of us, I assume, if you bother to show up on a Sunday morning, you believe in God, right? So we would, conf- we would affirm, we believe in God. Do we all believe that God is important? Even maybe most important, we would say, well, God is important. The answer is a pretty easy, yes, we believe God exists, and we, we believe he's fairly important, but we have to ask, is that all this commandment is going for? I mean, so I asked, you know, have no other gods before me is the first commandment. Everybody here believe in God? Yeah, all right, you're dismissed. Let's go home. We got that one nailed down. Nice work, everyone. We've fulfilled the first commandment. Probably a lot more, and there is a lot more to this commandment than just some sort of general, basic affirmation of God with no defining of terms, no understanding of who he is, and, and no real idea of what that means that you, you have him as your God. There's something very large and profound that comes out of this when we go to the prologue of the Ten Commandments where God says that I am the Lord your God who called you out of Egypt, who rescued, took you from slavery out of Egypt, that this is a very specific God that is being referred to. He talks about himself, this God, that we are to have no one besides him. This command is connected directly to the prologue that God is the God who brought the Israelites out of Egypt. A very specific God. And this is the basis for Christian exclusivity. So we're talking about this morning in the first commandment, this idea of exclusivity that there is one God and all other gods are not really gods if they are not the one true God that we know as the Christian God. And this is arguably one of the most controversial statements in our culture today. With our context, with the temperature of our culture, this is one of the most controversial statements. Even more controversial than saying adultery is sin, than calling theft sin, than talking about coveting being sin, that you shouldn't want somebody else's stuff as a sin. Even more offensive than that in our culture today is this statement that there is only one true God. And if he is not the God you worship, then you are not worshiping the real God. This, as controversial as it is though, this is the biblical historical claim that our God, the God, the Christian God, is the one true God. And my desire when we come up here on a Sunday morning and when I stand up here is not to present you some new, inventive, entertaining ideas, you know, so we can all feel better and feel happy and whatever. And wasn't that a good time? And we leave, you know, we've been, had our fancy tickled or whatever. I, we, we gather, I want us to ground ourselves in historic Christian faith. I don't want to talk about what's new necessarily, but what is what has always been? What do we ground ourselves upon? The historic Trinitarian monotheism, fun big words, Trinitarian monotheism is the view that the Bible gives us. And consequently, all other views of gods are not gods at all. It's the point Paul is making here in our text for this morning, right? 1 Corinthians 8. 
He's talking about food sacrifice to idols. It's a different context. Uh, you should have been the boomers class if you wanted to hear more about that. So it's coming in a context about food sacrifice to idols. But he makes this statement very clear. Look maybe with your Bibles if you still have them out here. He says that uh, this food that's offered to idol, he says in, in verse 4, an idol has no real existence, that there is no God but one. For although there may be many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many, air quotes, gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. The point Paul is making here in the text is that there are no other gods except for this one God. There is no God but one. All the other gods are so-called gods. One God, one Father, one Lord, Jesus Christ. And when we say God here, when we say God and have no other gods before me, this is the God that we mean. This is the God that has been revealed. The God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's why we recite the Nicene Creed, right? I, I, I know when we do it, everyone's like, that is the longest thing we've ever read for a call to worship. All together, this big, long Nicene Creed. But listen to the language there. That, that creed was, was written at a very specific point in time, uh, uh, arguing against a very certain heresy that Jesus Christ is God, that the Holy Spirit is God. That's why it has all that language, one essence, begotten, not made, uh, this language of Jesus Christ being this one God. When we talk about have no other gods before me, we mean the monotheistic, one God, Trinitarian faith that the Bible gives us. One God and three persons. One in essence, three in persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. First Timothy 2.5 says there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. So permit me to be explicit. Any rejection of Jesus Christ as God in the flesh is breaking this commandment. I know we're using God language, have no other gods before me, but in the Trinitarian and the full understanding of Scripture, any rejection of Jesus Christ as God in human flesh is breaking this commandment. To deny Jesus his deity is to not have God, the real God, to be your God. So, this means Allah is not God. This means the God of the Muslim faith. They do not recognize Jesus as being God in the human flesh. It's blasphemy to them. Their God is not the true God of the Bible gives us. Allah is not God. He is, a, as Paul would say, a so-called God. Uh, the God of the, the Mormon faith is not God. They have a weird view of who Jesus is. They have a weird view of who God is. That it's not biblical faith. That their God that they worship is a breaking of this first commandment in their wrong view of who Jesus is and even, I would say, who God is. The God of Buddha, which there isn't really a God of Buddha. It's a weird, it's a, basically an atheistic worldview. It's not the true God. The God of Gandhi is not God. The Jehovah Witness God is not God. They do not grant Jesus deity. They do not say Jesus is God. To reject Jesus as God is to break the first commandment. Jesus is clearly revealed to us as God in the human flesh. So, 
these people, and, 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 and now as you think, boy, Daniel, you're being hard on everybody. Every one of those people, if they, were, if they were a faithful Muslim, if they were a faithful Jehovah's Witness, if they were a faithful Mormon, would come in here and would say the same thing about me. If they were worth their salt, they would say the same thing. They would say the guy up there front telling you that Jesus is God, he's breaking the first commandment. So I mean, I'm not like throwing, throwing stones at anybody else that if they were faithful to their religion, wouldn't throw them back at me. So to not worship Jesus is to break this commandment. However... So we say, well, thank goodness we're in a Christian church. We're not at the Jehovah's Witness temple. We're not in a Mormon temple. We're not uh, at a mosque. We're in a Christian church. So again, I guess we're all okay, right? Head on out the door. No, it doesn't get quite that easy either. So we take the principle from the sermon on, on the plain where Jesus, we just studied that in Luke, that you want to look at the log in your own eye before you remove the speck in your brother's eye. So this commandment still does say something for us, though we may give a vague nod of the head to the Christian God. This flows out of the uh, Orthodox Jewish faith, which has the Shema and Deuteronomy chapter 6. This, they would say this all the time. Every day they would say this passage. It's found in, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. goes like this. Here, maybe you've heard this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God... The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Jesus quotes this in Matthew chapter 22 when he's asked by a Pharisee, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, the first and the greatest commandment is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. The Lord, Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. It's clear that Jesus does not say, this commandment, oh, that's old stuff, we're going to go on to something new. This commandment is binding on us today that God, the true God, the God of Israel, the God who rescued the Israelites out of Egypt, Jesus Christ, his son, would be the one true God. And we are to love him with all that we have. And we'll get into that more in a bit. What is meant by no other gods before or besides me? How does this apply to us? Does he just mean that among the gods that you have, you should have no others um, that are above me, before me? You know, I don't, I don't have any that are more important than me. Don't even have anybody that are besides me. You can have all kinds of gods, but just make sure I'm the big one. Is that what he means when he says you shall have no other gods besides me or before me? You've got all kinds of gods and you have all kinds of things you rely on and you worship, but so long as I'm the main one, then it's okay. That's not at all what God is meaning when he says, have no other gods besides me. This is, a God's, this is God's expression of a covenant. This is his covenant with Israel. So think marriage covenant. He's taking a people unto himself. And when you get married, when you swear to your spouse, I, you and no other forever so long as I live, when you swear that to another, do you mean when I have you and no other, do you mean no other above you? Now I'm going to have lots of spouses, <laughs> But, but you're going to be the, the most important one. Is, does anyone get married and like think, oh yeah, that's what we mean? No, that's not what we mean. But that is not what, and that's not at all what God means when he says we are to have no other gods before him. Has anybody ever watched The Wonder Years? You can't show your hands. I need some affirmation. Anyone watch The Wonder Years? Okay. I'm like, oh no. no one watched, you guys are missing out. It's super, it's good. It's on Netflix. Uh, actually, I shouldn't commend it from up on the pulpit, probably, but whatever. But I, I love it. It's great. It's nostalgic. Anyway, 
So there's an episode of Kevin uh, is sitting down and his older sister brings home her hippie boyfriend. And he comes in in his VW van and they get out and they're, they're all in, they're, they're, you know, big into love and you know, free speech and all this great hippie movement that they're into. And uh, Kevin's sister walks out of the room and the boyfriend gets on the phone. He's talking to her to the girl and saying, yeah, I just dropped her off at her house. I'll be over later. I'll probably spend the night at your house. And Kevin's like, what's going on? That doesn't, you know, you can tell that doesn't sound right. And, um, but the sister's totally cool with it. You know, we love everybody. You know, that's, it's okay. Yeah, he loves her. He, you know, we we just love everybody. And Kevin, of course, is not buying it. Spends the whole episode trying to convince everyone to hate the boyfriend. It's a good episode. But uh, finally at the end, at the very end of the episode, it's all kind of the whole storyline is wrapped up, but the boyfriend comes pulling up in the VW van, and she gets out, and she's screaming. They're obviously in a fight, and she says, you told me you loved her, but you never told me you were sleeping with her. And, and, and that's kind of like, you know, there's this concept of, well, yeah, I, I loved her, but you know, there's this miscommunication. What does it mean to have the one, to love God, to have no others besides him. And we can really mess up with our definitions. God does not mean our desire, does not mean or desire our love to be alongside of our affections for any others. That we would say, well, I love you, I love you, and and it means all kinds of things. He desires, he alone is the one true God and worthy of all of our love and all of our devotions. So there's there's positive and negative ways we can work in these commandments. We've got to get moving here because I'm spending too much time. Uh, but we can look at the positive aspects of the commandment. What, what is commanded of us in the, in the command to have no other gods but God? And John Calvin, his, his Institutes of Christian Religion, breaks it up into four categories. He says there's adoration, there is trust or faith, there's invocation and thanksgiving. Four ways we can keep, four category, categories of keeping this commandment. Adoration, faith, invocation, and thanksgiving. We are to keep this first commandment with our adoration, our worship. To have God as your only God and no other gods beside Him means that we worship God. We lift up the name of God. We give God our attention. Who gets your attention on Sunday morning? Well, we're all sitting here. Who gets your attention on Monday morning? Who gets your attention on Tuesday morning? Who gets your worship? We are creatures that are made for worship. We cannot help it. We live our lives worshiping things. We, we constantly sing the praises of this, that, or the other. It's worship. We marvel at things. We enjoy things. All of these things are worship. Jesus, and so the question isn't not will we worship. The question is what will you worship? You will spend something, even after you leave this place this morning, you will go and involve yourself in worship of something. The question is not, will you go worship? It is, what will you go and worship? Worship is not just what we do on the Sunday morning. It is what we do with our entire lives. Jesus in his temptations from Satan declares, you shall worship, he quotes the scripture, saying that you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Proper adoration, proper worship of God also implies right knowledge of God. Are we searching, seeking, learning to know who this God is that we would worship Him uh, properly? Obligations of adoration, obligation of faith or of trust. Do we trust God completely or are we still relying on ourselves or something else? God as the creator of the universe is a trustworthy God. Paul in Romans 
14, 23, he's talking again of food idols. Oh, yeah, that's what he's... I, he's speaking again of food idols, but he says, he makes this incredible statement that whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. The implication from that is that in, in looking at the first commandment, is that because God is, because He is God and there is no other, everything we do, we are to do by faith in Him, trusting in Him. Whatever is done that is not done in faith in God, worshiping God, faith in Him is done. That is done in sin. And if it's not done, trusting Him. We have adoration. We have trust or faith. We have invocation. Sorry, I'm flying through these, but we have invocation. Do you call on the God, do you call on God to the exclusion of all others? When you are in trouble, where do you go? Do you call upon the name of God? None of us here would profess atheism, likely. But but are we practical atheists? When trouble comes, where do you turn? What does your prayer life look like? If your prayer life is non-existent, if trouble comes and you think, how can I fix this? What can I do? Start making phone calls to this person, that person, the other person, trying to figure out how to solve your problems. You are a practical atheist. You do not believe that there is a God, there is something bigger than you that you would call upon. The command, one of the implications from the command to have no other gods before me is that we worship and adore Him, that we have faith, that we trust in Him, and that we call upon Him that we call out to Him, that we are praying people, that we would call upon the name of God. The real practical application of how you live your life and who you rely on is if your calling upon God is absent, then you are a practical atheist. Adoration, trust, faith, invocation, and thanksgiving. Do you thank God? Do you see Him as the provider of all things, not just your salvation? Of course, we thank God for that. You should thank God and you must thank God for that. But when you appreciate beauty, do you thank God? I used to, and it would annoy my wife. We'd walk out, we'd see a sunset, and we're just enjoying it. And I'd say, there's no offense to my father who's sitting here, but I'd say, my dad made that. I'd say, my dad, my dad did that. He didn't do it. My father, my, my physical father. But I would say, my father... Dad did that. My God, my God, my Father, He made this. My thanks is not to science or astronomy or how it all works out. My thanks is to the God who made this beauty. We are to give our thanks to God. When you sit down for a meal, do you thank God? And now, this is not where I'm going to set up the rule that we have to pray before every meal. I, I don't, that not obligating your conscience to do that. But have you ever sat with someone who does do that? Who, when they, no matter what they do, if they're at home having a meal, if they go out to eat at McDonald's, if they eat the most disgusting thing they can find, they sit down and they thank God for providing food for them. They have an attitude of thanksgiving. And I'm not wanting to set a law up to you, but I wonder, do you ever sit down when you're sitting down this Sunday, say, for your lunch after this, God has given this for my benefit. God has provided for me. Do we thank God when we have shelter, when we have air conditioning, when we have clean clothes on our back? Do we thank God? And implied in this commandment is adoration, worship of God, trust, faith in God, invocation that we would call upon God, and thanksgiving that everything good coming to us has come from God. And so not in some generic way of, oh, I'm a thankful person, but in a very explicit way, God, I thank 
you, my good Father. These are just a summary of a few of the implications on the positive aspect of how we keep the command to have no other gods. Now, on the negative side, we've got to get moving. On the negative side, we can approach this commandment from a couple of ways. And the first is just to take these positive commands and ask, in what ways do we withhold adoration? In what ways do we withhold faith? In what ways do we withhold calling upon God? And in what ways do we withhold our thanksgiving? Half-hearted allegiance is disobedience. Half-hearted allegiance is disobedient. Worshiping God a little and worshiping things beside Him is disobedience, is transgression. Half-hearted allegiance is disobedience. That's why in Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. We think we can. We think we can love them both. Jesus says no one can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. In this context, he's speaking specifically of money, but the principle of loving anything alongside God, giving him half-hearted obedience, is the same as giving him full disobedience. The idea of giving God half-hearted obedience is the same thing as giving him full-hearted disobedience. It's the indictment of the church in Laodicea. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, he says, I wish that you were either hot or cold, but since you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I spit you out of my mouth. This half-hearted, this indictment of being in the middle is the rejection that comes from breaking of this commandment. It's half-hearted disobedience is disobedience. So, this is where the crushing comes, because we have to get honest here. We have to get honest here. Jesus makes these demands exceedingly high. Love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our strength. We have to take him at his word that when he says all, he means all. No partial love will fulfill this command. And if we spend a moment in honesty, I think it's easy to say, there are moments where I have not given God all of my love, all of my affection, all of my trust, all of my worship, all of my, all of my calling out to him, all of my faith and all of my trust and all of my thanksgiving has not gone to him. That's one negative way. The second negative way to look at it, let's do some more crushing. That Hopefully that hits you and that crushes you a little bit. Like, oh no, hope we got enough time to get to the good news because I'm crushed by the first commandment. We're one in, we're one commandment in and I'm in trouble. But hold off on that just a second. The second way is to ask what things besides God get our worship, our adoration, our faith and our trust, our calling out to, and our thanksgiving. What things do we put that onto? Not only do we give half-hearted to God, but what other gods do we give it to? Back when God spoke these things and wrote them down on the tablet of stones, they were dealing with physical idols. There there were physical creations being made. You can go back to the Exodus account and see that when Moses came down off Mount Sinai, what had Aaron and the Israelites done? They'd made a golden calf. They, They had actually taken gold, took their earrings off, melted it down, and Aaron says... Out came this cow. He, you know, it just magically appeared. They're worshiping physical idols. Now, thank goodness we are so much more advanced than that today. We are free from idols, right? We don't have those things set up. But I don't think that's a true statement. We are not without our idols. Philip Graham Ryken put it like this. The reason why we have trouble recognizing our own private idolatries is not because we don't have false gods anymore, but because we have so many. 
the reason why we the reason we have trouble recognizing our own private idolatries is not because we don't have false gods anymore, but because we have so many. Everywhere we look, John Calvin says, our hearts are idol-making factories. We crank out idols after idol after idol. Here's something to worship. Here's something to trust in. Here's something to call upon to have my security in. Here's something to thank to thank for what is given me. We are idol-making factories. The best way that I found to get at your idols is through these three tests. These three easy tests. Go through these tests periodically in your life. It is the money test, the thought test, and the time test. The money test, the thought test, and the time test. Where do you spend your money? Where does your money go? What do you think about? And where do you spend your time? If I were to give you a chunk of cash, whatever is substantial to you, for some it might be $10,000. For some of you, that's not a lure. It's got to be more than that. For some of us, it's like $100. It's like, what am I going to do with $100? So, but say you were given a substantial chunk of money. What's the first thing you want to go get? What's the first thing that you're looking This is what's going to bring me happiness. This is going to make my life better. Where do you spend your money? Or if you went through your ledger and you saw, oh, I'm putting a lot of money into this certain area. Look at where you spend your money. It can diagnose to you where your idols might be. Where do you spend your thoughts? If you were left alone in a room and you had a half an hour, what are you thinking about? What are you daydreaming about? When your mind is going through your day, where do you find it slipping off to? Where's your paradise in your mind? What is your thought life? It's an indicator to you of possibly some idols, some idolatries. And where do you spend your time? If you were to take your time as a ledger, where do you spend your time? If you were, I mean, we could really, if you were to take the population of this community and of possibly this church, our time spent watching frivolous television shows, time spent escaping into our TVs or escaping into Facebook for my generation or Twitter or whatever you've got social media wise, where do you spend your time pointing out to your, your idols? If you had a free day to do whatever you wanted, what would you do? Or answer this, I'd be happy if. So what are our modern idols? What, do we, what are we placing our faith in? I would argue we're placing our faith in ourselves, our own moral goodness, thinking that we are good at heart. We are trusting in ourselves. There's a weird statement I don't understand that uh, believe in God, he believes in you. God has belief in you or having faith in yourself, building up this trust. We have this, we create this culture, this, this uh, idea in our culture of belief in self. We are the ones, if, if, it's, if, it's up, if, it's, if it's to be, it's up to me, right? This kind of God of self. I'm going, when, I need, when I'm in trouble, who do I call upon? I call upon myself to get it done. When I need, when I, I, you can't trust anybody but yourself. You hear that? You've heard that before? That is an idol of self. You know who I have to thank for these things in my house? Me. I've earned them. I've gone out and got them. That's the idol of ourselves. We have done this. We have idols of experience. This was so mad. This meant so much to me. This is, this is what's happened to me. And so therefore, because I experienced this thing, I feel this so strongly in myself that it must be true. It is the thing I bow down to. We have an idol of experience. We have an idol of love by our own definition. We have an idol of the Trinitarian God of self. <laughs> if you're making notes, you could write these down. I, found, I read these. I thought they were so good. The Trinitarian God of self. 
which is the God, the Trinitarian God, of the Godhead of pleasure, possessions, and position. Pleasures, thoughts, this activity, it fulfills me. Food, my sexuality, thrill-seeking, nostalgia, family memories, pleasure, the Trinitarian God of pleasure, possessions, and positions. This item will bring me joy when I possess it. Or position, when I get the recognition I deserve, when people think well of me, then I am happy. The difficulty when it comes to idolatry is it doesn't have to be bad things to be an idol. It doesn't have to be bad things to be idols. Good things that take on too much weight can become bad things in our lives. When good things become God things, that's a bad thing. And it's a bad thing because not only will idols not bring what they promise, but they're bad things because they will condemn us. So when we talk about these idols and we're diagnosing idols, and, and I'm saying to you, these idols, they will not fulfill you. Your fulfillment comes in Christ. Your, your satisfaction is found in Christ alone, delighting in his statutes, delighting who he is and what the gospel is for you. And an idol is going to fall short. It's going to leave you disappointed. And that's absolutely true. But you know what the big problem is? Having those idols, worshiping, loving God half-heartedly is sin, and worshiping, adoring, trusting in, calling upon, and thanking things other than God leaves you condemned as a commandment breaker. To have no other, God has commanded us to have no other gods, and to do so is to transgress against his good and loving will. So to half-heartedly worship God is transgression, and to worship other things beside God is transgression. We are all laid low by the command to have no other gods but me. So then, where is the good news? It's not in the naked command. The command on its own brings no good news. Have no other gods besides me. Boom, we're all laid out. We're all in trouble. It's crushing. It lays us bare. But the good news is when Jesus marches onto the scene and he fulfills this command perfectly. Jesus worships God rightly. When it comes to adoration, Jesus worships God rightly in spirit and in truth. Jesus worships God. When it comes to trust in God, not my will, but yours be done, Jesus prays. He has trust that God will not lead him astray. He, for the joy sets before him, endures the cross. Jesus worships God. Jesus trusts God. Jesus not only worships and trusts God, Jesus calls upon God. God the Son calls upon God the Father. He relies upon Him. He says, I do only what I see the Father doing. He's at the tomb of Lazarus. He says, I thank you, Father, that you revealed these things. Jesus perfectly calls out to His Father. And Jesus thanks the Father. Jesus thanks God when He breaks the bread, when He is parting to the, he's feeding the 5,000. He thanks The Father. Jesus shows up and guess who keeps the first commandment? None of us. Jesus does. Jesus shows up and he keeps it perfectly. He fulfills the law's righteous demands. John the Baptist baptized him and John the Baptist doesn't want to do it right. And Jesus says, this is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus earns the righteous reward and then he suffers an unrighteous death. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him to be sin who knew no sin. That's Jesus. God makes him to be sin so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. I'm going to be playing that note over and over and over again as we get through these. That's good news for us crushed sinners. 
reason why I tried to lay this on you hard and try to hit you hard and try to get you to see how we're crushed just by the first of these commandments is because when we see that, the good news rushes in and says, though you are stand condemned under the first commandment, Jesus shows up and he stands righteous, has fulfilled it. And what does he do? He goes to the cross. He suffers the condemnation we all deserve on the cross so that through repentance and faith, our transgression is laid upon him. And yes, His full righteousness is given to those who would trust in Him. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin so that in Him we could become the righteousness of God. And so we come to the communion table. All this should go together, this call to repentance. We come to the communion table. And what we see here, this table is not for everyone. This is a place where the believer in Christ partakes of a reminder of what Jesus has accomplished for him. It is a reminder of what Jesus has done. Seeing ourselves as sinners under the condemnation of God, do you repent? Do we confess, yes, I'm crushed by this first commandment? Do you turn from your sin and trust in Christ? Do you say, I am laid low, I need a Savior, I need a Rescuer? My question is, will you now Trust Him and in His righteousness. And so, if so, then sinner, know you are forgiven. Know that though you have failed, God's mercy is greater. And to come and to receive at the communion table the perfect righteousness of your Savior. So that in the joy of that reality, we may then go out empowered and enlivened to have no other gods but the one true God over all. Let's pray. Father, work this in our hearts. Humble us before you. None of us can stand up in this place this morning and say, I'm a first commandment keeper. We're all transgressors. And what we need is not to work harder. We need forgiveness. So Father, give us eyes to see and broken hearts before you this morning that we would come repenting and receiving the grace and the forgiveness found in your Son and in Him alone. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.